Welcome to Fretnot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretnot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, inventor of the original nylon string for guitar, my string of choice, and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Chuck Hullihan, a guitarist, educator, conductor, narrator, arts administrator, and a classical music radio host. He directed the guitar program at Glendale Community College since 1999, where he's the assistant department chair for performing arts. In 2015, he was chosen by his peers to receive the GCC Gaucho Globe Award for supporting student success. His work as a conductor has included over 50 concerts directing the GCC guitar ensembles and includes leading large orchestras comprising students from high school, college and guitar society ensembles. He's director of the Guitar Foundation of America's Youth Guitar Orchestra, Community Guitar Orchestra and Guitar Summit, where Chuck and I first met. He's an absolute ball of energy, and if you haven't had the chance to meet Chuck and you have the opportunity, you should definitely take it. This is one of the most uplifting conversations I think I've ever had, and Chuck has the most amazing radio voice that I think I've ever heard. I hope you really enjoy this episode and its slightly longer format. I couldn't bear to cut it down. As we go into the new year, I'm trying out a few different episode formats, so please do let me know if you enjoy this or if you prefer the shorter episodes. You can always contact me either on Instagram at rosiebennettguitar or at fretnotpod or on the fretnotpod email, which is fretnotpod at gmail.com. Enjoy. Chuck, what is a lesson that you've learned that's been the most meaningful to you? Gosh, so, well, first of all, Rosie, thank you. Um, I've super enjoyed <laughs> your podcast and like congratulations just in general. I think you're absolutely killing it. Um, and thank I'm really honored to be one of the guests because you had <laughs> really cool guests. So I'm going to just connect the dots and just pat myself on the back and be like, yeah, I guess maybe I'm still cool. So, because uh, <laughs> you've had some Definitely. great people on here and like, really cool conversation. So, uh, so yay for you for doing this. You know, I've, um, I followed you on Instagram, you know, big surprise and, uh, definitely, you know, so certainly your playing grabbed me, but it was, and I think I mentioned this to you when we first started chatting, like your message really grabbed me mm. particularly, you know, I don't know. And again, I don't want to digress. I promise I'll go back to the question, but so I'm 51 years old. And by the time I got on social media, you know, my life was pretty well in, in place or something. My, uh, my beliefs, the way I, the way I carry myself, my, my, my confidence level, whatever, all that stuff. So maybe I kind of, I, I escaped, um, coming up on social media or something, but I, but I, I realized mm -hmm. through the lens of my students, how false an image can, can be out there of this perfect world and perfect everybody and, and everything's just jolly good. And um, you just like present the real. <laughs> and I think, I think that's such an important message, which is exactly why, like, I want to say you were the first person I reached out to when we decided we were going to do Summit virtual and I wanted to make something really special for the students. Uh, and so that's how, that's how we connected. So little, little backstory, and you were an outrageously fabulous guest at this past summer's uh, 2021 uh, virtual GFA Summit. In fact, you were our first guest. You started off, and it was, it was just like, it was awesome from the get-go. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. That question... You know, I mean, we could we could talk like guitar specifics, but I just think there's like most of the things that are really important to me are kind of more overarching, I don't know, themes or just concepts, but something that always, you know, has, has struck me since mm -hmm. I kind of moved from student status to like, okay, I guess I need a career. I need to figure out a way to like not have to get a job is, is the, the funny <laughs> way I always say is, is just that I realized that, um, Many of us just, uh, and I definitely was this way, 
follow other people's paths, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of the natural thing to do. Like, who do you identify with? Who are your role models? Who are your, you know, superhero guitarist or, or really plug in whatever your pursuit is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we get fascinated with, um, with their path, their journey, their career. And I think so many of us, yeah, maybe school's got something to do with it. We can chat about that. But, <laughs> you know, we get kind of into this, um, I don't know, production line of, this is what we're supposed to do. Point A leads to point B leads to point C. And um, I, I guess I was fortunate in that uh, I figured out pretty early on that it looks like like some really crowded rooms in there that everyone's trying to squeeze into. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some open rooms uh, where mm -hmm. there's space, like space for me and my voice and, and, and my skill set. So I guess like the, the, the big, most meaningful lesson is just um, that you have to forge your own path. And that can be a harsh reality for a lot of people when it's just easier to kind of like follow the, the rule book or the playbook and, and follow someone mm -hmm. else, someone else's path. Uh, I also realize it sounds pretty cliche that, oh, you have to forge your own path. But pretty much everyone I know that is successful, and that's another word maybe to unpack, um, mm -hmm. has, has really kind of done their own thing or, or, you know, found their comfort zone, found their strength, found their... Um, their contribution, you know, what, what it is that they, they can do exceptionally well or what it is that they can contribute to the field and, uh, mm -hmm. and kind of made their way. Um, I, I don't know, maybe just like one, one, one aside or one, one example. I, um, you know, the, the generation I came up with, I think we all, we were going one of two places. We were going to be like internationally, you know, famous concert artists uh, mm -hmm. or we were going right to like a university and we were going to run like an amazing guitar program as we had, as we had seen. Mm -hmm. And um, pretty early on, I, I guess I figured out just how hard that making a living as a concert artist was was going to be. Um, and and I, I quickly thereafter realized just how difficult it could be to also get a full-time, you know, university college position. And so the, I guess mm -hmm. the funny story is I was coming up or I know if it's funny or not, but it was my reality. Is I used to like love reading concert biography so you go to the concert you know you get there early you look at the program there's the, mm -hmm. the energy and the excitement and and i always loved reading the artist biographies particularly early on i was new to classical guitar i was new to the community new to the scene and i was just um really really interested in seeing people's stories via their biography mm -hmm. and early on i would i'd read these bios and i was like oh wow like so and so is teaching it at three different schools like that's pretty cool. You know, wow, it must be a superstar. And then I'd go to another concert and like, whoa, you know, this person teaches at five different schools. Like, that's crazy cool. And then, you know, I'd go to a concert and I was like, oh, they, like, they only teach at one school? Like, what's up with that? You know, <laughs> last person, like, I had no idea that, you know, maybe it, um, maybe it wasn't really what it looked like on the outside, like the quantity over quality thing. Mm -hmm. In other words, at that point in my development, I had no idea that what I was looking for was to try and find that one job because that one job was probably going to be something that I could really base a career on. Mm -hmm. and, and now we're talking all the stuff that maybe people don't like to talk about with music, you know, like how can I get a regular paycheck? How can I like think about a retirement in the future? You know, how can I have some kind of like stability in my life? So I, I, I figured out that you know, like it wasn't about teaching at as many places as you could, that it was probably about trying to find one place that could like fully engage you. And um, at that point, I realized I looked around. So I live in Arizona in the U.S., and I, I looked around and realized the, the three large universities here uh, up north in Flagstaff, Northern Arizona University, where I went to school uh, in, uh, in Tempe, Arizona, Arizona State University, and then about two hours down south in, in Tucson, Arizona, the University mm -hmm. of Arizona, that all three of those institutions had teachers that had been there for the better part of, well, at that time, the better part of 20 years. And as it went on, those teachers all were actually at those jobs for 40 <laughs> years. Uh, so I realized, you know, that was probably an entire like career span that those three jobs were going to be locked up, were going to be held up. Mm -hmm. And... I looked around at all the folks, you know, in my program and then all the folks at the other programs and realized like the numbers didn't add up so well if we all decided we were going to get a full-time college yeah. jobs because they just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in my case, you know, I, I started to forge my own path and I 
got connected at a, at a community college, you know, a junior college, a two-year college, of which we have a large network here in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I, I think like a lot of people, um, I, I assumed it was a, you know, a stopping place along the way, a, a stepping stone, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. And um, I, 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 I realized I had found my dream job. And it was like, it was like that, that was the landing pad. Like, that was it. And uh, now I had to develop it, and I had to build the job up and, and, and go through the whole fun process of, you know, being an adjunct faculty member to created and funded a position. And then I had to apply for my own position. So I won't say it wasn't without bumps and bruises and some gray hairs along mm -hmm. the way, but um, ultimately, you know, kind of forging my own path. And this is just, just, just part of, part of the story. I think all of our lives are in chapters and there's definitely been a few chapters of my professional life. And I never really know what chapter I'm in until like after the fact, when I reflect back, but that's been an important one for me. And that's been a really something I try and stress to all of my students, particularly if I see them identifying with one really clear path mm -hmm. that was probably worked out for someone else, but may or may not work out for them. And this is a dangerous thing because I have to find that happy line as a teacher be between inspiring and totally building someone up to, of course, follow your dreams. And of course, you should pursue what you want to. And that little bit of practicality in me that has to just share kind of the data or share the options. Um, I'm never trying to put anyone's fire out, but I, I do want it to be based in, in reality for people. Uh, so that they have a clear idea of, of what's out there later. I think it's fascinating you talk about the path thing and also with reference to looking back at it because obviously everybody talking about their journey, especially we see this a lot in interviews, people always talk about things from a perspective of I went from this thing to the next thing, this was the next landmark and then I met that mm. person. And what they don't talk about, of course, is all of the other events they went to, all of the other people they met. Yep. And all of those things become the sum of a few monumental parts or a few monumental people who shape your journey. Um, so, of course, it's different for everyone. If you do exactly the same steps as somebody else, it won't work out for you because what we do is so down to chance, really. You can make your own luck, but the luck that takes you is completely unique. Um, and it's fascinating really, because I think we do have to work quite hard in a creative career to manifest a lot of the opportunities that come our way. And we have to be a little bit more open, like you say, to which things may well be where we want to find ourselves and you never know unless you put the effort in. And when we have the blinkers on and we're looking forward to this performance career that maybe we'll want to become Christopher Parkening. We we blind ourselves to a lot of opportunities around that that might make us happier. And um, so I think having that idea that this hindsight is 2020 but also that you can analyze your life from from looking back. You can't really from looking forward. You never know which thing is going to be the thing that sets you off on this on this path towards what you want to do. Um so I love that you sort of fall into it. Totally talking um, my game. I think we all fall a little bit into what we, what we end up wanting to do. And I love that you mentioned the comfort zones thing. That's something that really resonates with me. I love the idea that you'll find more success in staying in your comfort zone and elbowing your way to a little bit more room or finding a way to combine your comfort zone with someone else's comfort zone. Um, I think that's much better than us all leaving our comfort zones and trying to do something that doesn't suit There's us. There's so much good in, in, in what you're saying, so many things that are just kind of connected with me and making my mind fire in multiple <laughs> directions, but like for sure. So I, like I, I've always thought every time, like so personally for me, this does not mm -hmm. apply to everyone, but I, I've always grown and um, kind of met the, met the challenge most outside of my comfort zone. So that's like where for me, I've... I've changed, I've been challenged, I've, I've, I've grown, I've, you know, I've, I've built up some new skill set, uh, overcome some adversity, whatever. But I think then where I've always ended up thriving is that, that comfort zone, right? So I think what you're describing with like that little bit of elbow room is, is about constantly expanding your comfort zone, mm -hmm. right? And then like, I think we can stay in our comfort zone for, um, for the confidence, for the consistency, for the, um, uh, for, for the opportunities that come up, I mean, for just the the, the, the practical nature of uh, 
of, of things you can do well, things that you can, can sustain on, things that you can build a career on, uh, but then always expanding somehow. And, and, you know, maybe we're talking about the learning process. Maybe I know I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly learning. It's like the, one of the greatest secrets about teaching, right? Did you get to... You just get to think about all this stuff and teach yourself along the way. But you, you mentioned chance, and I can't, I can't not jump on that one too because I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, 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 there's so much conversation about, you know, hard work, hard work, hard work pays off. And it's like, yeah, sometimes, you know, definitely mm-hmm. you need the hard work. Um, I don't know if the hard work always equates to it paying off in the end. I mean, you're going to be a better person, all that good stuff, but depending on what you want out of it, there's absolutely chance that plays into it too, right? The luck, mm-hmm. the being in the right place at the right time, but then you got to be prepared for whatever that opportunity is. So you certainly have to have put in the hard work, but you can't avoid talking about the, the luck, the chance, the opportunity knocks. Um, probably the greatest job I had in... in an auxiliary field of music. I, I shouldn't even say auxiliary because for me it was like squarely in the middle of music. It was just at the time I thought, oh, this isn't what I was planning on doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was absolutely being in the place at the time. And I was um, one of my uh, one of my main maestros uh, here in Arizona. I'm Professor Frank Kuntz, uh, uh, now retired uh, from Arizona State University. When I moved to Arizona to study with Frank in um, mm-hmm. 1993. I, uh, at the time for my first two years of graduate school, I, uh, I, I rented a room in Frank's home. So Frank was not only my teacher, but he was my, he was my housemate. And, uh, you know, and there was like all sorts of cool side stories with that. And, and it, it afforded me, a, um, you know, an amplified, uh, school experience. You know, the artist would come mm-hmm. stay with us and I had the coolest guitar collection and <laughs> things, things like that, uh, and, and then like funny little, like being in the right place at the right time. So... I actually ended up working in classical radio, public radio, as a, as a classical music host for just about a decade, a radio station here in Phoenix, Arizona, 89.5 KBAQ. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, it, I was in graduate school. It was my second year out here in Arizona. I had intentionally not worked at the beginning of graduate school. I, I, I had this mindset that I was going to graduate school to be completely immersive, and I had spent a good amount of time working in undergrad, and I just really wanted that experience. So kind of a side story, but you know, I, I, I borrowed and I did everything I could to, to just have the experience I wanted. Uh, but in my second year of graduate school, I just answered the phone at Professor Kuntz's house one day and I had kind of a penchant for just answering the phone kind of funny and you know I don't know I don't remember what I said at the time but the phone rang I answered you know like yeah you've reached the home Professor Frank Kuntz and I'm to put on some little funny voice and just did this and like the guy calling just went silent and then he like started a little bit and um, um, uh, is this Frank's house I was like oh yeah yeah sorry this is, you know, this is his student Chuck you know I just always like to mess around when I answer the phone you know yeah Frank's not home can I take a message and long story short it was the program director at the local radio station who was calling Frank about a guest artist that was coming to town to like arrange an interview mm-hmm. but he um yeah I guess he was just kind of like taken by the way I answered the phone <laughs> uh, we started chatting about uh, a little bit about music he asked me a little bit about my background asked me if I'd ever visited a radio station uh, and asked me if I wanted to come visit the radio station the next night thought it was a little strange at the time but I was like I listened to the radio station I knew who this person was and I thought cool let's go check out the radio station mm-hmm. went down to the radio station the next night uh, and gave me a little tour I had no idea where this was going, like truthfully had no idea where it was going. Mm-hmm. And uh, I put me in a little room and you know, there was a mic and, and, and like put a recording on and just said, hey, uh, why don't you sit down in front of this microphone and as this piece finishes, just back announce. I said, well, what, what's, what's back announce? He's like, well, you know, when you're listening to the radio, like the thing the announcer says after the piece as compared to in front. Oh, yeah, so just like say what we heard and all and say something about it. He's like, yeah, just like wing it. So I'm watching the recording, recording finishes, and I just like hit the mic button and just back announce the piece. And again, I can't, I can't remember what it was. It's probably a better story if I knew the details. But uh, like the guy walks back in the room, he says, yeah, hang tight one second. I want to get someone. And he 
goes and gets one of his colleagues and they come back in and I'm looking through one of the, you know, broadcast booth windows, like the double glass windows. I'm looking into another studio at them. I'm sitting in a studio with headphones on thinking, you know, what's going on here? And uh, they like talk a little bit and they walk back in the room and he says, you want a job? And I, I responded, um, doing what? You know, he's like, doing that. I was like, you mean, you mean talking like on the radio? He's like, yeah, you want to be a radio announcer? I said, Sure. All right. You can start tomorrow night. And I was on the air. The ne- <laughs> I was on the air the next night. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, but, you know, learned on the job and thought, what a cool opportunity to kind of be in the, the, the crow's nest of the, of the local music community, to be able to listen to all this music, talk about all this music, kind of be the, the heartbeat of the classical music scene. Ended up being like the most amazing job uh, during graduate school. Uh, because it was just so tied into a part of the music industry that I, I wasn't aware of. And I ended up working in radio for 10 years. There were times when I thought maybe I might go for that as a, a, as a permanent career, that there were mm-hmm. opportunities there. And I, I tell my students to this day, I, don't, I, I can't imagine any scenario where I would have listened to like 20 hours of music a week for 10 years the way I did at that job mm. because I, I mean, I just had to always have an ear on it. I had to, I had to notice everything and I had to be like ready to talk about it at all times. And yeah, there was guitar music, but this is how I got really familiar with the opera and orchestra and chamber music rep. Mm. And that was like as in, in, important a learning experience for me as any, any schooling, any lessons, any summer festivals. It absolutely as you say, you know, it just became part of me. It just became another one of the skill sets that I possessed. I guess I was ready for it in some way. I mean, I don't really know how much preparation I had done for that one, but it was absolute chance. I answered the phone one day. You never know. (laughs) One year also at the radio, the local symphony called. They knew I was a guitarist Mm -hmm. and said, you know, Sharon Isman is going to be in town performing with the symphony. Um, She's requested someone that's a guitarist, be there to sound check her instrument. You know, we, we thought maybe you'd be into it. I said, right, sign me up, heck yeah. And uh, this was right when I was finishing graduate school, I guess, and went down and helped with the sound check. I was super nervous. Mm-hmm. I'd never met Sharon Isbin before. I was a super fan. And, uh, you know, like, no stress. I just had to, like, play her guitar with the orchestra on stage as she walked around the hall and listened to the sound check. I mean, I don't think I'd ever been more stressed in my life, but I was just kind of, like, enjoying myself. <laughs> And uh, little did I know, but at the end of, you know, helping with the sound check and uh, she just says, mm-hmm. how come you don't go to Aspen? And I thought, um, um, I, I don't really have an answer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, you know. And she wrote down a, a, a name and a phone number and said, would you go to Aspen? I said, I'd love to go to Aspen. Are you kidding me? She said, call this lady tomorrow. I'll get in touch with her tonight uh, and just make arrangements for you to be at Aspen this summer. But I went to Aspen that summer and... That was just because I agreed to go down and do a sound check and, you know, ended up being the person who, you know, was in the place at the time and, you know, met lifelong friends, had a life-changing experience at this insane music festival. It was, and it was just all because of chance. You know, that one I was definitely prepared for, mm-hmm. but uh, it was absolute chance, Rosie. It was absolute chance. I love those stories. I, I want to ask a little bit more about that because... I think sometimes in interview, when you hear those stories, it can make you feel quite stressed. I used to feel that when I was young. Having this idea that there are opportunities sitting around everywhere and that you might miss them. At the time, I thought of both of those things and I guess a ton of other examples as like really being small in, in the moment, not super significant. Okay, now... now they getting invited to Aspen was pretty significant, but like I had no idea it was coming. I had no idea I was going to end up working in radio for 10 years. But at the time, it was this small little thing that I think only in reflection after the fact, and as I tell the stories or, or maybe because my, my life ended up the way it did, I think now of that experience as having more impact, you know, kind of because my life went in this direction. But... Um, yeah, again, I don't want to sound like cheesy or cliche, but I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm kind of into music. I, um, uh, Pat Martino, great jazz guitarist, recently passed away. 
And I was reading a number of different quotes about Pat Martino, and and one of them really resonated with me. And I'm totally bad. I always misquote people. I kind of get the gist of it, but I can never like actually do the quote. Uh, but but it was along the lines of like, it, it was along the lines of I'm not really that into guitar. I'm into the people that the guitar connects me to. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm into all the musical experiences with making music with others. The guitar is like just my tool or something. So mm-hmm. it's taken me a while to figure this out, but. I'm just really into people. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the guitar was, as a, as a teenager, it was like my escapism vehicle. So I get home after school and kind of play guitar in my bedroom. And in college, I first went to be an electrical engineer. Uh, and that didn't work out at all because all I did was play guitar. But I had to find my way into the, into the music program. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling on you a little bit, but I just... I, I, I think the, the small things along the way are, um, are the connections to people. So mm-hmm. the, you meet someone at a festival, you, you, you meet someone on social media, you, 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 you meet someone at an event, and you just make a connection. Because the exciting thing for me is all the possibilities of where that connection could lead. Um, there's comp- I've, I've had such fortune, like great, great fortune and such honor to be able to work pretty closely with a, a lot of composers who who write a lot for guitar ensemble music that I've I've I've, I've been fortunate to um to be in enough I guess to just get, be in front of enough guitar ensembles that mm-hmm. uh, I've 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 you know been identified as kind of guitar ensemble person or that's one of my angles or something and um and just through little connections of you know reaching out to someone and saying hey I dig your music or hey I heard this recording I think it's really cool or hey you know my, my students are working on your piece and just wanted to tell you you know thanks for writing it it's a really cool piece and we're enjoying it and you know you spark up a little friendship you spark up a small conversation and one day like a piece shows up in your inbox and hey I was thinking of you when I wrote this piece and dedicated it to you and it's just like these small little like every interaction they're mm-hmm. all significant right you just don't know where they're going you don't know what's going to happen in the in the future i am um, the community college that i teach at and i think it's safe to say like all community colleges they're they're commuter colleges right there's no on campus housing People live in the community. They're very geographic. The majority, like by an overwhelming majority of my students, live geographically within 15 miles or something of the campus. And they mm-hmm. choose the campus because it's closest to where they are, right? Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, I'll have a student that I meet somewhere that actually ends up relocating to come to our community college, which I think is like every university college everywhere, like people relocate to go study with their teacher, but it's like pretty rare at a community college. Um, mm-hmm. But a, a case in point, I have a student there this, uh, this semester, uh, shout out junior, uh, who I met at a music festival in Austin three years ago now. Uh, I was conducting Austin Classical Guitars Ensemble Festival and he at the time lived in Oklahoma and was there with his high school guitar ensemble playing in the festival just in, enjoyed what I had to say, enjoyed the direction that, that I gave. We hit it off. And fast forward a couple of years, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm moving to Arizona. I have family there, and I'm going to come to Glendale Community College. So it's like, you never know <laughs> who you're meeting for a short period of time that is going to come back into your life, who you're going to end up like doing some amazing things with, like doing projects, mm-hmm. doing collaborations. So I, I don't want to sound too like cheesy with this one, but I just think like every little maybe insignificant or small little chance meeting, chance happening uh, really has major significance or certainly can, can bear major fruit in the, in the future. Mm, I love that. I think something that made me stressed when I was younger was um, the notion in one of my favorite poems by Charles Bukowski that says, the gods will offer you chances, know them and take them. And that used to stress me out because I used to think, oh, what if I miss my opportunities? What if I don't localize where they are and I don't capitalize on them? I think probably the important thing to realize is that if you're old enough to listen to this podcast, you already have a number of these things already working out for you. And a bunch of these things are already on their way to return to you in the form of chances and opportunities that you'll be able to capitalize on. 
um, it can be really difficult when you start out to see where those things are. But as you get older, you just accumulate more experience of knowing people and having done more things. And then it's a sort of snowball effect. Um, so yeah, just following everything, I guess, is a really, it's a nice way of looking at it. Because I think sometimes the interview narrative can be stressful if you're learning because you you sure. think, well, where are my opportunities? I think it's probably important to realize you already have them. You just need to put in yeah. the work <laughs> so and well um, not just wait around and see if something else will come because otherwise you'll have that horrifying experience, which I, I guess many of us have, myself included, which is that an opportunity comes your way that you would love to take advantage of, but can't because you don't yet have the means with which yeah. to do so. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, that's well really said. nice, and you say it very positively, which I love. But now, 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 I, now two things, Rosie. Well, first of all, like I love Bukowski, so I love that you said that, and I feel the need to tell you that. Um, though my brother is no longer um, with us on this earth, he was 15 years older than me, and um, mm -hmm. as a child, uh, I, I grew up Catholic and went to Catholic school. And uh, my brother, mm -hmm. being 15 years older, let, let's just say maybe had, uh, uh, had, had put in his time and, and moved on. Uh, but when I had to bring a book to school for like poetry day, I want to say it was mm -hmm. the fifth grade, uh, my, my brother sent me in with a, with a Bukowski book. And uh, that, one, that, that one stirred things up pretty good at the, uh, <laughs> at the, at the fifth grade level at the Catholic school. <laughs> well, for anybody looking for some slightly um, intimidating inspiration, you can go to YouTube and listen to, I presume it's him, it may be someone else, read these poems in a really low voice. It's a sort of... Oh, that stuff's so good. Yeah. yeah. I think this ties in really lovely to the second question that I'm going to ask you. Um, which is, what is a lesson that you would like to impart? Yeah, yeah. Um, that one, that one was something that I, um, I think I came to, um, throughout like chapters I mentioned, like thinking back, mm -hmm. I, know, I always love when people said you can define your life by the, the animals you've had, like, like your pets. Uh, I remember the reference at the time might have been dogs, but like you go back and you reflect on your life and like the chapters of which dogs you've had or something. Mm -hmm. and, and I definitely have, have that aspect to my life as well. But as I look back on like my musical life, you know, I, I kind of have my, like my student chapter. And then after, after graduate school, uh, my wife, uh, Teresa, who was a, a flutist, um, we, we made a pretty good go. I was kind of all in for chamber music that my enlightenment during, um, during college was like everyone was, gaga over solo guitar and i was like mm -hmm. i really like playing with people um it, it was also the identity of my first my, my first teacher that really imprinted upon me but I, I was so i was just always most into chamber music and most into playing with others so by the time i got to graduate school i was pretty like i did the solos that i that i had to but i was pretty tunnel visioned on on chamber music and uh eventually met my wife during graduate school and then kind of became exclusive to playing as a duo with her and mm -hmm. uh you know we made a pretty good go of it in the years after graduate school of um, you know doing 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 local concerts, doing regional concerts, doing some some touring, trying to you know deal with with, with booking agents and, and and go to um go to performing arts uh, presenter festivals and just like get out there and uh, you know all the marketing material, recording the website, I mean just all the usual things. And I don't, I'd, I'd say we we made a pretty good go of it for for ten years. Um, and that was definitely one of my chapters, like mid nineties to mid two thousands or maybe um, like 2006 or seven. We never stopped playing. We never like said, okay, this is it or something. We just, you know, other chapters had started to develop. I got my, um, started teaching at a high school in 97 and then started teaching at the community college where I'm at now in 99. And, uh, eventually, you know, the, the teaching, occupied more and more of my time, more and more of my life. It was what I was asking for. It was what I wanted. I needed work. Um, but along the way, you know, I, I just got to kind of, a lot of people I think don't like to talk about this, but it, but it really conflicted with practicing and performing and continuing to kind of develop me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know there's a million examples of people who I think successfully balance those two things, uh, but I was not successful at balancing those two things. I was kind of all in on the teaching and the 
type of teaching job that I had uh, at a community college is, is very much um, you're expected to be in the classroom teaching. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. quite a bit different from maybe a university position where, you know, part of my responsibilities would be in the classroom, but part of my responsibilities would be my artistry and, and keeping up with it. So mm-hmm. it, it just became harder and harder for us to maintain the level that we had expected of ourselves and, and had gotten from ourselves when we were like only dedicated to performing. So that, that, that next chapter really turned into my, my, my teaching chapter and that overlapped getting like knocked over the head with Django Reinhardt, who I had, I had always known about. I had had a couple of other moments in my life where people turned me on to Django and I was like, whoa, like I'm ready to go all in on this, but it's totally going to pull me away from what I'm doing. Uh, and that happened like twice in the nineties. But when it came back to me in like 2005, six, uh, I kind of accepted it and, and just let it hit me over the head. And what I mean by that is like, I started playing uh, a Manu style jazz, really just um, working all in on, on Django Reinhardt style, uh, a Manu style, Roma style guitar. Uh, learning to play with a pick again and, and, and playing an improvised style went, went deep into that. And that was probably my first sense of, um, uh, uh my, my friends, my, my former teachers, you know, colleagues all like, Hey, don't, like, don't you play classical anymore? Hmm. And I was like, yeah, like, yeah, I do. But like, I'm doing this thing now. And, and that was the beginning of me realizing people were always asking me about what I had been doing rather than be just embracing what I was currently doing. It was a little frustrating for me. Because uh, it was kind of like, where were you when we were doing that or something? But uh, and it really did the the had a group called the Hot Club of Phoenix, played with, with a great guitarist who was also a former student of mine uh, and bass player, and just like had an, an amazing journey um, playing really with a completely different group of musicians, different like scene, different um, community, uh, and and felt no re- regrets about it. But there was definitely forces in my life that were kind of trying to make me feel guilty or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, with the like the constant reminders of what I had been doing compared to what I was doing now, mm-hmm. somewhere during that journey, I had always conducted. My first teacher was a conductor. I just kind of thought that's what you did. Everyone conducted. It wasn't until a few years later that I realized that was not the case. Um, mm-hmm. And I just started doing more and more conducting and getting more and more uh, conducting gigs and like having hell of fun fully engaged and completely artistically satisfied. And of course, then it quickly became like, oh, you're conducting all the time. Aren't you doing any of the Django jazz anymore? And it was like, it was always that same kind of thing. So where I'm going with this one, and I am, I am, I am on the question, was just how do you define success? You know, is it, is it the goal you first set out to do? Are you allowed to change your goals? Do the goals expand or just kind of move? And, and what does success mean to you? Because for sure, as a, as a student, um, it was pretty clear what success was going to be. It was very narrow, but it was like, oh, you know, you're out doing concerts and everyone knows your name and you're, and you're selling recordings and like you're on top. And um, mm-hmm. it was like, that was, that was not me, but I was feeling pretty successful. <laughs> so, I, you know, I had to expand my sense of what I accepted as successful. And I reflected back on my earliest thoughts. I kind of came to classical guitar, I don't want to say late, because most of my students are coming to classical guitar at the same time, but I think by one standard, you know, starting classical at age 19, 20 was probably considered, you know, l- at least late on the later side. And totally not that uncommon with the guitar, but it, it became a little unrealistic, you know, if I was starting at 19 for me to expect a certain level by 21 or 22. So Mm. at some point in my early 20s, I decided I got to give myself at least a solid decade. Like I've got to be at this. I've got to give myself some time to grow. And, And if like nothing's happening by the time I'm 30, then I'll consider doing something else and like getting out of music, but I, I got to give it a fair amount of time. What I discovered was over that period, like your lens changes, your focus mm-hmm. changes. Yeah. And you're accepting of other opportunities and your idea of what success expands to include these other cool things that you're doing that are like working for you. And I just had too many friends, too many colleagues who got on to the, you know, their thirties or their forties or their fifties. And we're still kind of hung up on that original dream from their teens or twenties and just not allowing themselves to change, to embrace, to expand their idea of success. 
So if there's anything that I can impart on anyone and everyone, it's to have a really wide scope for what you feel is success and what's going to make you feel successful. Because I think too many people beat themselves up feeling unsuccessful because they didn't follow someone else's path or they didn't accomplish their original goal or they're just stifled with allowing themselves to change their goals or expand their goals. And if I can be really, really specific, I think there were just tons of teachers who, um, gosh, i got to be careful with how I say this, but you know, for a lot of people, teaching is like a gig. It's not necessarily what they want to yeah. do. It's maybe not necessarily what they think their calling is or even what like they, they should be doing, but it's just kind of what they have to be doing to pay their bills. I kind of hate that stuff, Rosie, <laughs> um, because mm. I, I legitimately love teaching. I just 100% legitimately get completely like artistically satisfied from being part of the process with my students and letting them shine on the stage. You know, like mm. I have no problems. Like I get to play at the GFA every year. It's just the baton, not a guitar. I'm cool with that, you know, but I, I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't be cool with that. So for me, I think what allows me to, to enjoy the success is to accept the success for what it is, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, something I talk about with my students a lot is that if you're going to be a ghost on earth and return for your unfinished business, is that unfinished business going to be something you enjoy? And I think mm. having the performance dream, being that soloist who tours the world and lives out of a suitcase, is not really a realistic um, picture of success for a lot of us. And it can be hard to get rid of that. It can, it can be hard if you've been brought Heck up yeah. in that way to think that anything else is anything more than um, rearranging yourself in the face of failure. Um, which is really toxic in a way because I actually think most of us, and I'm maybe this is going to be a sweeping generalization, but I do think that most of us who are playing guitar are by and large homebodies who like yep. to sit and explore things alone. Yep. Um, and people who don't like um, fast paced, anxiety inducing situations. So it's funny that most of us end up having the dream in inverted commas um, of, you know, touring the world and standing there on a stage in front of thousands of people every night. It's just, it just doesn't really fit. Um, and there's so many things that you can do. There's so many ways that you can feel successful, satisfied. I think when you said satisfied, that really struck a chord with me because I think feeling life satisfaction is in the end going to be the most important thing. But you need to figure out 100%. what it is that makes you feel satisfied. And we are lucky, you know, if we go back to the path, lots of careers have a sort of you start as a runner and then you graduate to making a couple of coffees and then you do blah, blah, and then you end up in, I don't know, editor in chief of something. Um, and for music, it's a, what can be quite terrifying, blank, empty space. And you can move in any direction. You can um, take a couple of steps to the left, you can leap forwards, or you can, there's all kinds of ways. It's just making your way through, you know, like this fresh snow. Um, so really, you just have to find, I think that's so hard. I really sympathize with anyone who looks at their life and feels a bit bleak, because I think we've all been there. Oh, um, absolutely. Just trying to find those little things, maybe even looking back and thinking, hmm, that's really curious, but I was quite happy when I was talking with such and such a person while doing such and such a thing. Um, and it can be hard, but knowing that it's okay to not, to perhaps, or not, maybe not, not, <laughs> but to stray away from that idea of being the, being the performer. I, uh, yeah, I mean, you, um, you just articulated yeah. so many things like really clearly for me. I, uh, I'm definitely a creature of habit. I, I love traveling. I love traveling for fun. When I'm traveling for work, mm -hmm. I am stressed out because I know people are, you know, even if I don't like give off that stress vibe at all, it's like deeply internalized mm -hmm. because like, I don't want to be late. I don't want to screw up. I don't want to like be the person who like mm -hmm. messes up the event. It's like, there's pressure. Not to mention like not every hotel's nice and Sometimes you don't want to stay with a host because you just want to turn off. I mean, um, 
there's a lot of things that I think as an mm-hmm. outsider looking in seem really sexy about traveling and touring and being that, in that lifestyle. But wow, like you mm-hmm. got to know what you're getting yourself into because on, on some of my limited you yeah. know experiences, both traveling as a guitarist, you know, oh, but it was just like, gonna break a nail you know just the stress of that alone was <laughs> like enough you know and then mm-hmm. like i've got pretty thin nails and they they tear a lot in the corners and uh i could always expect mm-hmm. i mean like clockwork if <laughs> if i really needed a nail like that was when it was gonna tear mm-hmm. and oh my gosh like the amount of anxiety that <laughs> that would create for me on a day that i couldn't even enjoy if i had a concert that night <laughs> you know and i just something about conducting there's just no stress for, for me whatsoever. Uh, and, and there's a lot to be said for that. It's like, okay, I guess the baton could break, but who cares? I'll just use my hands. <laughs> like, I, don't need I guess I could forget my music. Mm-hmm. That, that would suck, but you know what? I know this score. <laughs> like, I don't need the music. Like, there's just really, other than like, I suppose I could get a really bad back spasm, like, <laughs> like being in physical trouble while I'm conducting. But otherwise, it was just it just mm-hmm. didn't occupy that same kind of like stress or something. And uh, so that's that that's definitely definitely something to think about. I mean, I don't think people uh, who haven't experienced that level of stress realize just how like unfun stress and anxiety can be. And though I don't necessarily want to take us in into the past, I um. I think also what you were describing a little bit maybe played out in in real time in a very condensed way when, you know, the pandemic hit and we all went into lockdown. It was like I saw musicians, mm-hmm. um, well, not just musicians, let's just say people. I mean, obviously the people that I'm most connected with are largely musicians, big surprise, but I, I, I saw people, you know, <laughs> like running with it for the, like the opportunity and whether that opportunity was to like slow life down and, and be at home and, and kind of get back to what they got into in the first place. So we're now we're talking about the people who, you know, who composed or created or recorded or like, like took advantage of the, of the new free time. There are other folks who I think, mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm probably in that category who just wanted to like fix everything. And, and the way we're going to fix it all is just by like, just marching into this with super positivity and like, let's embrace technology and let's embrace, embrace new ways. I had never taught a guitar lesson online not to mention I had never conducted a rehearsal online. And um, I mean, there's a lot we could actually talk about with that. But I also saw people frozen in their tracks, just slammed on the brakes with, whoa, what am I supposed to do now? Like everything I'm prepared for did not have this contingency plan. <laughs> you know. And I guess I'm, I'm stating all the yeah. obvious, but I think personalities came out and maybe that was, that was the immediate or the condensed version, what I think some people experience played out over, you know, over a decade or over a career or over a lifetime. You know, are you going to be frozen in your tracks or are you going to be okay with change? Are you going to even ride the wave? Um, I I have all sorts mm-hmm. of mixed emotions about the last year and a half. I mean, on one hand, I am um, for like the first time in my career, I like struggled as a, as a teacher with not being as effective as I knew I, I, I usually was and not being able to like fix mm-hmm. everything and not being able to be the perfect teacher for every student. Um, and, and that like hurt like a lot. And I, I, I struggled a lot at the end of a long teaching day with like, why isn't this working mm-hmm. and what's going on? And, and, uh, but on the same, on the same hand, I was healthy the whole time. I was employed the whole time. I was at home with my lovely wife, like happy as could be it's like, things were good. Mm-hmm. Like I did not have it rough by the world's standard. And in fact, there was all this opportunity that came my way because I was comfortable in front of a microphone or comfortable on camera or comfortable, like, you know, mm-hmm. making a fool of myself or, or comfortable, like, you know, failing. Um, but people kind of looked to me to, to help them in their situations. And I, I, um, I got a lot of like virtual conducting gigs and virtual guest artist gigs and virtual teaching gigs that I actually normally wouldn't have been able to do because it would have involved so much travel that mm-hmm. would have pulled me away from my regular job. So I, I like carry this like whole mixed feelings about, you know, the heaviness of the last year and a half and all that was lost or all that was missed or, you know, all that we didn't accomplish. And at the same time, the guilt of like, it was a pretty good run for me. Like I had a lot of work. I had a lot of opportunity that came my way. I just struggled with 
taking my mindset, which was totally, this is an opportunity. I'm going to seize it. I'm coming out of this one stronger and trying to transfer that to my students, which did not work mm. <laughs> uh, with all of them, uh, <laughs> it, with, with most of them, I'd even say. Mm. Uh, they were just having a completely different experience than me. And, you know, they were frustrated and angry and sad and just wanted it to be the way it was again. And, and uh, yeah, so that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's been the last, it's almost two years now, isn't it? So it's, um, yeah, yeah. it's been a massively reflective period for a lot of people. I do feel that a lot of people have been able to have the chance to slow down a little bit in this time, return to the things that perhaps um, elude our, our daily lives, you know, spending time with family or spending time alone, learning to be alone. Um, and obviously it's been very, very difficult. And for many people as well, especially in the creative sectors, I think it hasn't been a massively creative time, which I think a lot of people are struggling with getting back into now. Um, I see just on the little articles that I write for Tonebase that the stats have gone up wildly on articles written about productivity and how to make the best morning schedule. <laughs> I think people are a little stressed about what this two years means the regret now of course that perhaps you should have used it if you had only known that it would yeah. be so long that you should have used it to, i don't know yep. get fit or um, i don't know to become a vegan or to get a dog or to have a baby or to do all these things that perhaps if we had been able to look forward and see that it would last so long you know maybe learn a whole new program but um, yeah and, and what you say is very interesting rosie because my and listen, I'll be honest, I get accused of toxic positivity with some regularity, mm -hmm. <laughs> with some regularity, <laughs> but I, um, I, I don't know what the option is. Like I never enjoyed being around like a, a, a lumpy mopey person with a kind of a negative or a ho-hum personality. So mm. I just try and always be the positive light. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso. Or, or that that series, Ted Lasso, but I think he kind of personifies that, wow, how can that guy spin everything into a positive? And I, I think, you know, for me, maybe that was to my to my detriment mm. last year. But, you know, in, in, in regards to all that with, yeah, the regrets of, oh, I had no idea it was going to be almost two years. I thought it was just going to be two weeks, you yeah. know, so I chilled out on the couch and now, you know, oh my God, I missed two years. I could have <laughs> you know, transformed my body and made a recording and all this stuff. And I think that's just another symptom of regret about something we can't do anything about yesterday, mm -hmm. you know, when tomorrow or even this afternoon is like right there waiting for you because I don't know, I'm not sure this pandemic's over, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like we might not be out of it yet. So why not jump in this afternoon and that thing that, you know, you regret having not done, uh, start this afternoon, you know, then revisit the conversation in a year and look what you did. And, you know, and I get that stuff's easy to say, right? I like, I get it, and I'm, I'm guilty of not following it myself all the time, but I try really hard, particularly as I get older, to not really regret anything because I know I can't do squat about it. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what can I do about tomorrow? So I'll, I'll, I'll reflect on those things and think about how I want to do something different the next time or want to do something, but I really try and stay away from you know, regretting uh, if, if I did, I mean, I could have summed up probably all last year by saying, if I had only done the opposite of everything I decided to do, <laughs> probably would have been perfect. <laughs> well, I suppose the piece that we can take from feeling very regretful is that you are now a person who wishes for better. Sometimes these moods can take you where you think, oh God, I've actually not done anything, especially looking back and seeing this pattern. Um, shedding your skin can be painful and it can be tough and looking back at who you used to be can often be a very painful experience when you think how lazy your your previous manifestation of your person has been um but you know what it's such a good sign and looking back and actually having those regrets but using them as a positive force for looking to the future and saying well you know what it's been 25 years i've been doing this but today that's not good enough for me anymore um, and yep. changing it is much better. I mean, it's going to make you much happier than doing another 25 years and thinking, well, I'm doing this now. <laughs> it's the sunk cost fallacy of, um, of all of everything that we do in our lives, you know, oh, I haven't exercised for 20 years. So if I, you know, what's the point of doing it now? Well, because you have another <laughs> 20 years in front of you. 
Um, you yeah. know, the best time to start with something is now. And I think it's, uh, I don't think that you are toxic. I don't know. I mean, I don't know you personally. Maybe your wife feels differently. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, what is a lesson that you are working on currently? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm definitely working <laughs> on it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the last, the last year and a half had, had a big something to do with it. But um, mm. just trying to get to some place that I think is a healthy work-life balance. And, um, and that's really tricky because I've always, I guess I've always mm. felt, so er- early on and continuously throughout my career, I've always said, like, I just don't want to have to get a job. I just want to figure out a way to like not have to actually work. <laughs> and even though like I think by anyone's standard, I work like a dog. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still don't really think that I work because like I haven't had to put the guitar away and I haven't had to stop that. Like, I just want to be in music. I don't mm-hmm. really care like what aspect of it. I just, as a kid, I had all the jobs. I mean, I got a paper out in the fifth grade and I've always made my own money since then. Mm-hmm. And it's like just, that's the way it was. So I've got a strong work ethic, but I realized, you know, in, in high school and in the early years of college, like I am not cut out for like the workforce. Like I'm completely not into like waking up and punching a time clock and like working for someone else or, and, and I know this all sounds like funny cause I'm clearly, I work for someone else. I work for an institution, but I, I just feel like I'm getting away with something because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm st- I've still been able to avoid as an adult having to get a real job. Uh, and I know that that sounds like a false, but I, um, mm-hmm. so I always just wanted to work in music and not have to get a job. So that means I, I, I pride myself like I won the lottery that my, my hobby, my passion is my career, is my employment, like the things that I love to do, the things that I was mm-hmm. into always are the things that I actually earn a dollar on. And, um, that is a blessing, of course, but it also creates a real gray line between like work-life balance because it's like, well, work is life and life is work, so I don't really need to define them. And what does that turn Mm -hmm. into, particularly in the digital age, particularly in the last year and a half? Email, 24-7, you know, just go, go, go. You know, I'm working seven days a week. I never really check out. I never Mm -hmm. really turn it off. I, I, I... can't help but look at my phone I can't help but like get caught up on a Saturday morning or even if I want to take a Sunday to just not think about anything work-related it's just going to be easier than waiting for Monday and so I struggle with that but I'm really trying like really really trying to find a work-life balance where I don't feel guilty just going you know what I'm not doing anything today I'll do it tomorrow I'm not checking email um, I'm just, I'm not doing anything work related. I'm going to watch some TV or I'm going to go take a hike or let's like, or we're just going to like do some home projects or do something that's not work. And, um, I think I'm making improvements. I think mm. I'm moving in the direction. There's, there's been a few like whole days where I didn't like actually do anything. Um, that was work related other than I might've looked at email a couple of times. Um, but, but that's a, that's been a tough one. And I think that comes from the stuff we were talking about that like, being afraid to say no or that like relentless pursuit of achievement. And when you're around another musician, what do you ask? Like, so what do you got going on? Like, what's your next project? What do you got coming up? And it's like, Oh my God, I don't want to like say nothing. Mm -hmm. I got to have something to say. There's got to be some next project. You know, you just, you're so, that's so embedded in us. And, um, and I, I get why it's embedded in this, but it's, it's relentless. And I think you can wake up one day and go like, Whoa, you know, I, I forgot to live. And again, with the quotes, like I always forget, I always forget mm-hmm. who the quotes are from or what the direct quotes are. But um, oh, this might have been Rubenstein, but but I may be way off. But just the whole idea that you know you should practice all day, every day, and and like not have a life. It's like no. Then if you don't live, you have nothing to say in music. Like music's not worth playing if you know you don't live some life and have that expression to bring to music. You don't have that humanity. You don't have that that lived experience. To, to bring to music. So I'm trying to live, live life a little bit more outside, you know, and sometimes it's just simple things like leaving a little bit of time each morning to take a walk or take a hike before I dive into email or waking up early enough to like have a little bit of me time 
before I march over to campus and, and really focus on, on everyone else. Um, or leaving a little bit of time at the end of the night to go, you know what, there's some stuff I mm-hmm. should do, but like, nah, that's, I'm good. There's tomorrow. I'm just going to chill out for a little bit or something. So finding that work-life balance and kind of putting a, putting a chill on that relentless pursuit of achievement. And I, I don't want to say it's something different because it's kind of tied in, but, but I guess just like not taking things personally. I don't know if this is a separate lesson or if this is kind of tied into it, but that's, that's another thing that I've had to, um, you know, I'm a people pleaser. So I want to be, I I, want to be effective, which means, you know, I want to be, I want to be like the best teacher for every student. I want to be able like every lesson to be a meaningful lesson, every rehearsal to be a productive and memorable rehearsal. But it's like, that's not really possible to, to pull that off. So trying to, you know, like not take it personally. Yeah. Uh, and this is also, by the way, this is also crazy easy to say and so hard to do, but to, you know, separate, uh, you know, okay, someone like <laughs> someone's not into that piece or someone didn't enjoy that lesson or, you know, you're not connecting with the student and they're not enjoying you. And it's like, it's okay. <laughs> you're not for everyone. Like it's, it's, you can't please everyone. Mm. Uh, you can't be, you know, absolutely effective at, at everything, every time, and it's okay. But again, I think that probably comes from that fear of like, oh gosh, you know, you're only as good as your last lesson, or you're only as good as, you know, the last rehearsal that, or the, your last performance, or anything. You just insert the task, yeah. and like you're, you're mm-hmm. judged on the last one you did. So you have this fear of like having a dud, but I'd be getting more and more accepting of that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, having something to take into your music or having something to say, I think sometimes that even in itself can be quite a toxic way of looking at living our lives because, you know, it's all well and good finding that work-life balance. But if the life that you're having is still in service of the work that you're doing, um, then it's like, you can't just afford yourself the time to, I don't know, lie down on your carpet and look at clothes online for an hour because what's that going to bring to your Did music? someone tell you that I look for shirts online for hours at a time, Rosie? <laughs> your wife. No. Um, <laughs> no. But I, I just, I think a lot of people say things like that. Like, you know, if you don't go and look in nature or you don't experience life with other people, you won't have anything to say in your music. The fact is that no one knows what you're saying in your music anyway. Um, yeah, right. If you're doing it, great. And probably you do it well if you're even listening to this. And, you know, if you're thinking about this deeply, if you're whether you're doing it right or not, you are 100%. Um, and, you know, what you do in your free time should be that, just free to live your life because, uh, you know, it's a blessing being able to play music, but it's a blessing just to be here as well. And Absolutely. Um, finding that balance is key because so much of it is in the mind because you are not free if you are living your life still under the guise of, ooh, but maybe I could turn this into um, some kind of work or, ooh, I'm going for a drink, but maybe I'll meet someone at the bar who might be able to help me do something in my career. So um, really like that kind of what we talked about before, brain rot, that's kind of the, um, I guess it's the goal, looking for that being able to really truly relax and just engage in the life that you're living. I think that's something we all can do better because um, I think music is one of those jobs where you never really switch off. Always thinking about, hmm, how can I use this? How can I turn this into a meaningful experience for my music making, which is (laughs) great, but also can be stressful. (laughs) It's because it's the relentless, right? It's the relentless bit. It's, it's feels like some, some, Flavor of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck Callahan, flavor of insanity. <laughs> Your autobiography. <laughs> I love, I mean, I, I definitely, I have a couple of like completely non-musical super interests that just, I mean, like I, I'm really, I'm really into sneakers. <laughs> so I'm really into like sneaker culture. And uh, that like couldn't be, <laughs> couldn't be more different than, you know, the classical guitar world or something. I'm, I'm really into mixed martial arts, like the UFC and, and, and combat sport Ooh. fighting. You know, it's just like, it's always been a, it's always been an interest and a passion and just completely off the radar with, with music. I, since I was a little kid, I've collected toy trains and always really been into toy trains. And lately I've become fascinated with watches and in, in, in alternate 
life. I'm, I'm going to be a watchmaker or maybe I'll be a watchmaker in the future. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I love things that, that can somehow distract me from music for short little bursts at a time. Cause I definitely think I have a flavor of insanity as, as we're describing that it's just cause there's always projects going in my head and pieces going in my head and like something a student played will pop mm-hmm. into my head and I'll think of something and I want to like write it down or I want to send them a message or share something with them. And you got to be able to turn that off sometimes and maybe some art better than others. And I'm having to learn how to turn those things off. And I know that some of my distractions help me turn things off for a little Mm. while. Yeah. In a way it's like, um, you know how, uh, actors at the theater do a little ritual to sort of cleanse themselves of their character every night. Otherwise you go insane. Like someone like Vivian Lee who did go insane because her character was insane. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, we never do that with music. We never think about leaving that character behind. It just, it's us. We, you turn around and you're still there. <laughs> the person that played that bad yeah. concert is following you because it's you. Um, you just need to, I, I guess it's, it's so hard. It's something I'm learning now, but you really need to make your mind a nice place to be and find something that's completely unrelated and, and don't try and make it into your work so you can do more. Yeah. You're allowed to do as much of it as you like without it being work. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people do that too. You know, you can make a guitar competition where people have to fight and then also play. Like boxing chess. <laughs> Maybe you should do that for guitar. I would definitely uh, take that. And there's, and there's a judge's award for best sneakers. Yeah, exactly. And best watch. <laughs> <laughs>